We're going into uh, God's Word again this morning, Matthew chapter 28, and what an, uh, even an appropriate song to match what we're going to uh, see today in Matthew chapter 28. So join me over there, would you please? The last couple of verses in the entire book. I'm going to read verse 16 on through the end, verse number 20. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Heavenly Father, these are excellent words. We have the privilege right now to look into them and to be challenged by them. And I pray that uh, our hearts might be ready and receptive and obedient to the things we learn here today. Thank you for the privilege of being called your children. The privilege of prayer. The privilege of coming to this book to learn. The privilege of being your servant in this world today. Show us, Lord, again, what you are doing, that we might eagerly be participants in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in a uh, topic called Preparing for Harvest. It's much more than just the fact that the wheat is starting to turn golden. And it won't be too long that uh, that will be pulled up off the ground. But this coincides perfectly with uh, Scripture's uh, explanation of those days between the resurrection of Christ and the day of Pentecost, which was in Acts chapter number 2. We talked an awful lot about the life of Christ before the crucifixion and the resurrection, but... We don't spend a whole lot of time on the other side of the cross and talk about what he did for those actually 40 days of the 50 that lie between the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which came right on the heels of Passover, and the Pentecost, the day of the Feast of First Fruits, as they would call it, harvest season, and what they would bring in. So we're, we're... talking about that gap in between there, and the 40 days that Jesus used to train his disciples for something big, the start of the church. They had no clue what was coming their way. And this is what's exciting about these things as the Lord taught to them. And so we've already seen several of these, how they were taught to trust him. Uh, how they were taught about loyalty, how they were taught about their focus. Today, our, our attention is on the servant's authority. The servant's authority. And this is the section we are in here in Matthew chapter 28. Now, following a timeline, and I believe this is accurate, uh, when we talk about the episodes that took place, each of the gospel writers included a different aspect of it. They didn't all tell you everything they did from step to step. So each one adding to the understanding of what took place in those days. Uh, some of the things that we put together, at least we know very well, 
is that the disciples were very fearful, especially the Jews. And that's very important to understand in our study here today. We find them, on the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, locked in a room, remember? They were locked in the room, and according to John chapter 20, verse 19, uh, it was the evening of the day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Peace be to you. So fear is the first thing we read of these folks. In that upper room, they were locked in so no one can get to them. They were living in fear. That's the word phobos in the Greek. We get our word phobia from that. It speaks of a, uh, a, a fear, of course, a dread. It speaks of a uh, terror. Terror. This fear paralyzed them, as you know fear does. It paralyzed them, and I would say it's it's understandable. I think if we were in their sandals, we probably would have been in the same position as they were. They were told that Jesus was going to die, but they did not believe that. They were told that he would rise on the third day, but they did not believe that. Woven in all that was the fact that Jesus told them that he would meet them in Galilee, and they did not go. We have these written for us clearly in the Gospels. Instead, they were staying in a room in fear of the Jews. Now, there was a potential. A potential because they publicly followed after Jesus that the Jews would seek to put them to death too. And that's not so far-fetched, because what did they desire to do with Lazarus? You know that Lazarus, who had just been risen from the dead by Jesus, they thought, we should kill him. Now, that would make for a very bad day, wouldn't it? You died once already, then you get brought back to life, and then they kill you. That would make it terrible. They, They had plotted to kill Lazarus, too. You'll find it in the Gospels, but don't go looking for it right now. Alright? So, here they are, scared to death that they were on the list. There might have been a list, and they might have thought that was true. But, what we have also learned over the last couple of weeks is that they finally did go to Galilee. It was about a week later when they showed up at Galilee where they were supposed to be, and they didn't know why they were supposed to be there or what they were supposed to do. So, Peter suggested fishing, and they all said, hey, good idea, they followed his lead. Now, these are the days that Jesus is going to prepare them to be leaders of a newborn church. The first day, 3,000 new saints. And I ask this every single week. But do you think they're ready for that? They're going to be the leaders in that great congregation. And according to the book of Acts, more were added daily to that number. It was an incredible, incredible event that's just on the horizon. So Jesus is teaching them, teaching them about trusting him. The first thing that they were told when they were out on that boat fishing was, throw your nets on the other side 
And that doesn't seem to mesh too well for fishermen because they already know how to fish. But they did. They trusted that voice. They didn't even know it was Jesus at the time. But they pulled in a lot of fish, didn't they? He brought them to shore and he talked about, talked to them about certain things. But trust was the first thing they had to learn. The second was loyalty when he talked directly to Peter and he asked them those questions. Do you love me more than these? The third lesson was on focus, because he went on to tell Peter what to expect for the rest of his life down at the end, and Peter's attention was more on John. But what about this man? What about this man? Jesus says, don't worry about this man. You follow me. So focus was also a lesson taught. Today it's authority. He's telling them to go and make disciples. Here in Matthew chapter 28. Go and make disciples. Now, I believe Matthew kind of picks up where John left off the last few weeks, and he's with the disciples here. In verse number 16, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee. He doesn't go into all the stories of the fishing and everything else, but he does say, yeah, we did go to Galilee, and we went to the mountain that Jesus designated, and we saw him there, worshipped him, and some doubted. Jesus spoke to us. He said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. So you go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We're on a mountain in Galilee. Verse 16 tells us, simply, about this mountain. It doesn't say the name of the mountain. Some people speculate. He doesn't even tell us when he told them to go to that mountain specifically, but it was designated and they followed his instructions. We are also told in verse number 16 that it was the 11 disciples, right? You saw that? 11 disciples. Now, I think it's kind of interesting because if you pull out commentaries on this little section, you'll find that uh, they say, oh, it was 11 plus about 500 more. They go to all these these uh, uh, expressions and explanations that there had to have been 500 believers there because Paul mentions it in I believe it's in Acts or First Corinthians 15. He talks about Jesus appearing to 500 more, and they're trying to figure out where that happened. So they said, "Well, it's got to be here." And there's a reason why they want to say it's got to be here. And I'm going to show you what that is in a minute. But Matthew doesn't say there were 500 here. Did Matthew know how to count? I think so. He said 11. 11. I'm going to start with 11. All right? Now, the reason why they think 500 had to have been here was simply because of verse number 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, and some were doubtful. They said, oh, that can't be the disciples. That's got to be some of those other 500 people. Those are the doubtful ones, not the disciples. After all, they've seen Jesus already, haven't they? They they already know Jesus. Why would they be doubtful? And so they go through all these uh, explanations on why it has to be somebody else for them to qualify as being doubtful people. Now, I just look at this kind of grammatically for a second. And when it says, they saw him... Who is they? That's a pronoun. It's got to back up to a noun, right? What's it back up to? Eleven disciples, right? 
when they saw him, they worshipped him. Now, is there anybody else at it yet? No, just 11 disciples. And then it goes on to say, and some doubted. Some of who? Logically, grammatically, he's talking about the disciples. Now, does it strike you strange that some of the disciples were doubtful? Let me go through a little list for you for a minute. You can follow this in Matthew chapter 16. Verse number 11 is a good place to start. This is their track record, okay? Mary Magdalene has just gone to the tomb. She saw Jesus. She came back to the disciples and she told them, I have seen the Lord. This is their response. Mark 16, verse 11, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. (laughs) That's not a good start, is it? That's not a, a happy Easter Sunday morning sermon, is it? They refused to believe it. And then he goes on to say, well, Luke does anyway, um, that the words appeared to them as nonsense in Luke twenty four eleven. It appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. So does that? Pretty definite, right? Nonsense. One, one commentator said, the word is twaddle. Ever used the word twaddle before? Huh, what's that? I even had to look it up. It's, it's something insignificant and worthless. Twaddle. The words appeared to them as twaddle. That nonsense is a very appropriate word here. It means nothing to me, is what they were saying. Isn't that remarkable? That doesn't sound like our normal Easter morning services, does it? They said it was nonsense. The Emmaus disciples, remember they went on their walk down to Emmaus and Jesus joined them and talked to them and shared with them and and challenged them and then he disappeared and they came running back to tell the disciples that they had just seen the Lord. Mark 16, if you're still there, verse 12, verse 13. After that he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. And they went away and reported to the, it to the others, and they did not believe them either. So we're not setting a very good trend here, are we? They did not believe. This is mostly through the day now. They still did not believe. And then Mark adds this in chapter 16, verse 14. Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. Wow. That's a heavy little passage, isn't it? He reproached them for the fact that they had unbelief and hardness of heart. Jesus even said this to the Emmaus disciples, O foolish man and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Now can I add to this the testimony of Thomas? Remember Thomas? I will not believe unless I'm able to put my finger in the palm, the print in his hand or in his side. You remember Thomas. Now, I set before you the reason why I think doubt is possible in these 11 disciples. They've already exhibited it very well, haven't they? With some of the greatest news ever. Unbelief 
was one of the main responses to what they had seen and what they had heard. Now the commentaries would like you to believe by this point, all that unbelief has disappeared now. It's all gone. And they were now so scouting their faith that if anyone was doubtful, it had to be somebody other than the eleven. That's their whole argument. I don't think that the disciples have gone beyond that. Now, I'm not going to give them a lot of credit, right, that they're now superheroes in the Christian faith, but at the same time, I don't think I'm putting them down either. Because this word doubt is not quite the same as disbelief. This word doubt comes from a word dis in the Greek, which means twice or two. As you think it through, it, it, they decide, define it as being duplicated, or we might even use the word waver. As in, I've got this choice, and I've got this choice, and I'm divided in my mind. I don't know where to go. That's the idea of doubt. Two directions. What do I do? Where do I go? What do I do? See, fear has paralyzed them. Earlier we read that. Cause them not to do things. Cause them to lock themselves behind doors. But what does double-mindedness do to a person? They're pretty good at decisions, aren't they? (laughs) No, not at all. Matter of fact, paralyzing uh, responses and results are also true of being double-minded. Three times it mentions being double-minded in Scripture three times. Here's one. The psalmist of 119. Psalm 119 said these words. I hate those who are double-minded. Boy, that doesn't sound nice, does it? I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. And then James is the other one who writes on it twice. James said these words. He speaks of one being a double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. Isn't that quite a good picture of it? You're, you can't decide. You're unstable. You're, do you trust somebody like that? A double-minded man? He's unstable. You can't trust him. He's nothing to build on. James also says this. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, he's not talking about being able to multitask things as we use today. I could do 12 things at once, you know. Uh, He's not saying that at all. He's not even complimenting anyone with this term, is he? Scripture never does compliment people with the concept of double-minded or even of doubt. Now, I want to ask you a question, a real simple one. Is doubt a good way to start a ministry? (laughs) No, it's not. Can you imagine? Doubt? If you were looking for a pastor... You've been down that road before. You guys know what it's like. You're looking for a pastor, a spiritual leader. You seek to find a man who's undecisive? Do you look for a man who doesn't have any concept of where he's going? How he's going to lead you? Does that trouble you if you find him to be so? Do you desire one who can't make up his mind? Oh, I don't know if I want to be a pastor or not. Would you hire them? Do you feel confidence in following them when they lead? Now, I dug around in some of these older commentaries, because sometimes they're, they're 
terms are gems. And some of the impressions I get on doubt, it's very amazing to see how they closely associated doubt with sin. Listen to these comments. Sin is often the cause of doubt. Carelessness will also often lead to uncertainty and doubt. Disobedience and neglect of duty will lead to doubt. Worldliness will lead to doubt. Seasons of temptation also often are seasons of doubt because Satan worries whom he cannot devour with malicious joy. What an expression. (laughs) He worries them. Worries them. Ignorance leads to doubt. Maybe that's what we're looking at here. And ignorance is the cause of doubt. They don't understand. Here's one I thought very appropriate. Losing sight of Christ. Many start taking up feelings of themselves because they're not looking at Him. And as a result of that, doubt dishonors God because it robs Him of the praise that's due to Him. It mars our comfort. It weakens our strength for service, for conflict, for devotion. It chills our affection. It stunts our spiritual growth. It makes us unfit to witness for Christ. And it influences other people to act the same way. Is that what you want in a leader? You have a leader who doubts. Guess what you're going to have as followers? A whole bunch of doubters. What do you have here? Jesus training his disciples for ministry. And what is, what is one of the problems? Doubt. Some doubted. That's what it says. Some doubted. Not a very good way to start ministry. Some were doubtful. Jesus is about to hand them the leadership of the church. So how do you address that? Well, these words, verse 18, 19, and 20, are, are beautiful words. They're excellent words. We, we use them for missionary conferences. <laughs> these are our favorite ones to bring up in a missions conference because it's got the marching orders to go into all the world and reap the harvest, and it's great for that. I, I don't, I don't uh, uh, oppose that at all. I think they're great in supporting missionary uh, work, and we ought to be concerned about that. We ought to be active in that. We ought to be concerning ourselves with getting the gospel to every soul. Right? That's what we're called to do. We know that. We ought to be willing to go. But rather than emphasize all that, which is normally emphasized in these verses, I'm going to pull out a few words of verse 18, 19, and 20 that I think tend to get neglected in the whole phrase. And yet it's vital to our context, our context of doubt. First of all, the disciples needed to understand where the authority lies. The authority in ministry, where does that lie? Among one of the reasons I read to you here that the double-mindedness is caused by focus on the individual. It's usually upon itself. 
And what, what the, the individual is doing is measuring himself according to human standards. He's taking a very human or natural approach to things and saying, well, I'm either equipped for this job or I'm not equipped for this job based on this person or that person or this person. You know, this guy speaks real well and I don't speak so well, so maybe I shouldn't be a pastor. This person is, is gifted in this way and I'm not gifted in that way, so I shouldn't do that. We measure ourselves humanly, don't we? Is that our authority for ministry? How we compare to the next guy? This focus on authority is very important and, and essential to the issue of doubt. The disciples are going to be given a huge task, and they're not sent out without power to do it. They're not sent out without power to do it. Matter of fact, I'll say this as simply as I can. Whatever the Lord has called you to, He has given you everything you need to do it. He has given to you everything you need to do it. More times than not, we try to list the things we don't have and why we can't do it. He's told us He's given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. First Peter chapter 1. Now, what's left out of that? Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Does ministry fit in there somewhere? Yeah? Your spiritual gift? Yeah? Is calling you into service? Yeah? What's he given to us? Everything pertaining to life and godliness. We don't have the, the, the excuse or, or the way out by saying we don't have the power to do it. Jesus sent them out and he gave them power. But it's very interesting to note. Jesus knew their power. And he didn't say, it's based on your power that you go out. He already seen the display of their power. You've seen it too. Were you impressed? I don't think so. Nobody is when they read the story of the disciples. Especially those last couple of weeks. Jesus already knows your power. He knows my power. He knows what we can do. And that's why he kept telling them simple phrases like this. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Is that reality? Absolutely. Jesus came up and spoke to them, verse 18. He came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me, underscore me. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The word authority, exousia. I just love the sound of it. Exousia. Sounds like the name of a sword somewhere, doesn't it? Exousia. What is that? That's the word for authority in the Greek. Here's what it, it has to do with. It has to do with control. It has to do with domain. It has to do with force and competence. It has to do with mastery and the right to rule. That's its word. The right to to rule. This is what Jesus says he possesses. I have the right to rule. I have the mastery. I have the domain. I have the control. I have the force. I have the power. That's my authority. And I realize this as a pastor. That I get it wrong every time I think about ministry by my own power. We get it wrong every time we think ministry is by our own power. 
we get it wrong every time we do ministry by our own power. That's not the ministry Christ has called us to. It's by His authority. My authority. All authority has been given to me, He said. Isn't that pretty clear? And what jurisdiction does He have? Read the rest of the phrase. What, where does His authority cover? Heaven and earth. Oh, well, that's, that's useful. That covers just about every place we can go, right? Every place is under His authority. Now, we've got a message. A message to take to a whole world. And it demands authority from the one who possesses the whole earth. You see? He has the authority over the whole earth. And he says, now take my message into the whole earth. He's got the authority there. That's important for doubters to understand. They must understand this. And they need to have that viewpoint. It's what the the disciples desperately needed. Here's one comment I thought very good. It seems a strange injunction when we think that it was delivered to 11 poor, humble, unlearned Jews. But not strange when we remember that, we remember who gave that solemn charge. The Lord, whom all the angels worship, who is over all, God blessed forever. His servants speak in his name by his authority. The humbler they are, the more deeply they abase themselves and feel their own weakness and sinfulness, the more effectively does his grace work in them. Scripture says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And the answer of his servants in faith and self-abasement is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, the more we see his authority, the more we should go forward. He gives us what we need. Simply pictured in verse number 19. He gives us his name. So therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in what? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now that's not a secret potion. Alright? To say the name of Jesus doesn't do anything remarkable in the sense that, wow, this is a magical thing or something. Even this past week, I was getting my hair cut, and the lady cutting my hair, uh, she talks nonstop. Uh, but as she's talking, she says, I've got a question for you. And she knows I'm a pastor. And she, she says, now if it bothers you that I ask you these kind of questions, you could just say so. And I say, okay, ask me. You know, and she says, um, well, I grew up, this is the way she said, I grew up not praying in the name of Jesus, and now I'm attending this other church, and they say, I must pray in the name of Jesus. It's the only way to get an answer to prayer. I thought, huh, that's interesting. She never let me answer her, because she kept talking. <laughs> but that, that was her, her phrase. And, and what that, that equated to was that... The name of Jesus is a charm. It's a good luck mantra. It's something that that uh, God has to answer your prayer if Jesus' name is attached to it. And this is what she was coming from. And uh, the fact is, without Jesus, we can do nothing. That's true. 
We have nothing without Him. That's true too. But we certainly can't do ministry without Him. Can we? I mean, after all, it's His Word. It's His ministry. It's His plan. What is it without His name? We don't baptize in our names, do we? You'll never hear it when I'm doing a service, baptism service. I baptize you in the name of the Hillsdale Bible Church. You'll never hear that. You won't hear me say I baptize you in the name of Pastor Bob either. If I ever say that, shoot me, okay? Just get done with it. It'll be easier that way. This is in His name. Ministry in His name. Does that mean anything to us? Does that help with the authority issue? Who are we serving? Who do we minister under? It's his name. Here's another great comment. These are simple words and very familiar now. And a distinct effort is needed to realize how extraordinary they are. As spoken then and then to that little company, all nations are to be discipled and brought under his sway. Such is the commission, and to whom is it given? Not to imperial Caesar, with his legions at command, and the civilized world at his feet. Not to a company of intellectual giants, who by the sheer force of genius might turn the world upside down. Not, but to these obscure Galileans, of whom Caesar had never heard. Not one of their names had been pronounced in a Roman senate who have excited no wonder either for intellect or learning even in the villages and countrysides in which they had come. It is to these that this great commission is given to bring the world to the feet of the crucified Nazarene. And he said, Go, therefore. It would have been the height of folly to have gone on such an errand in their own strength. But why should they hesitate to go in the name and at the bidding of one to whom all authority has been given in heaven and earth? Yet the power is not delegated to them. It remains and must remain with him. It is not all authority is given unto you. He said, all authority is given unto me. And we must keep close in touch with him then, right? Wherever they go, this is going to be an extraordinary mission. But he gave them those words to speak. When they speak, speak what he taught them. Isn't that what he said? Teach them to observe everything I've commanded to you. When they go, they are to go by his direction. Even the results were up to him. You know, that's one area in ministry that we struggle more than any others, I think. We do our ministry because we want to see the results. And if we don't get the results, guess what we think? We didn't do it right. And we struggle with that. Because our focus is here and not on him. Who's in charge of the results? Oh, some water and some plant, but who gives the increase? God does. You see, in the authority issue, the, the doubts, whenever we're looking at ourselves, that's when they build. But when we look at him, it's his Authority. It's His name. We just go. It's His Word. We just speak it. We share it. We teach it. That's the answer to doubt. We have His authority. We have His name to serve under. That's the heart of ministry, folks. 
When you get down to it. That's the heart of ministry. If his name is not stamped on it, it's not ministry. It's his ministry. It's in his name. One more thing I want to add, too. That Jesus wasn't... uh, uh, he didn't leave this part off. In verse number 20. Teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always. His presence. His presence. What does I do about doubt? His presence. Lo, I am with you always. I had a pastor friend who said, that's the reason why he never flew. Because lo, he's with me. I've always accused him of twisting scripture right there. But, lo, I'm with you. One of my favorite remembrances, one of my favorites, uh, my children learning Awana verses, Awana Bible Club, their memory verses. I think it was Carrie who was memorizing this verse. Her phrase was, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the edge. I said, whoo! <laughs> How many times have we read at the end of the edge? Guess who's there? Lo, I'm with you always. I, I just think that, that was kind of cute the way. End of the edge. It just sounds funny to me. But think this through. Each one of these men, there's 11 of them now, as he's talking to them, they will eventually be going in different directions. They did not, not know it right now, but they will know it soon. That they're going to be heading to different ministries in different places, even different nations. And while they're with Jesus here on this earth, physically in his presence, he can only be with one of them at a time. But now that he's going up to heaven, guess what he can promise? I am with you always. What about him that goes this way? Yes. What about him that goes this way? Yes. What about this guy that goes this way? Yes. I am with you always. Wherever you go. I'm with you. Does that make a difference in ministry? Do you realize that when we meet here today and we're serving the Lord in ministry, guess where he's at? Here. Isn't he? When you go home, guess where he goes? He goes home. Does he just stay here the rest of the week? I am with you how often? Always? Can can that let it soak in for a minute. Always, always, always. He's with you always. That's what he told his disciples. I'll be with you always. You know what comfort that gives? You know what confidence that gives? He's with you. I know it. Going into a pulpit, some people get a little nervous. That's why we don't have glass pulpits here. You see their knees knocking together and things like that. You're, people get nervous about being in front of people and sharing things and, and maybe I say the wrong words and, and yeah Jesus is with us how often? always I, I've known several occasions in ministry how precious that little phrase came to me I know it's true all the time I know that's true but on particular occasions in one one church setting where there was a problem that I knew the result of such a problem, if it was led to its extreme, it would split that church. And I knew there was one right thing to do. And it would lead to such a thing because that's the way humans typically follow. What do you do with that? 
that's a struggle. Oh, that's a terrible struggle. Knowing that that decision is going to make an impact like that. But that decision wasn't made alone. <laughs> that ministry wasn't done alone. Jesus had promised, I'm with you always. And that doesn't mean only in the good days, right? And even in the hard decisions. And I was convinced that Jesus was with me. I was convinced that that church was his church and not mine. That ministry was his ministry and not mine. It wore his name, not mine. Church was hard, but you know what? He blessed the results. He blessed the results. Another occasion, I sat in a restaurant booth. Across from me were two leaders of a cult. They were doing their absolute best in arguing scripture with me to conform me to their thinking. They were trying hard. I was praying the whole time. Right in the midst of that, I'm praying in my heart, saying, Lord, direct me to the scripture that shows them that what they say is wrong. And it wasn't that I wanted to stomp them or, or such. I wanted defense. And I kept saying, Lord, show me. And he kept showing me. All the way through that conversation, the the intensity grew. And they got madder and madder and madder and finally left the room. I'm sitting there in that booth with more peace than I can recall in so many years. Because I knew Jesus was with me. That's all it was. He was with me. The time of great needs, he's with me. And the times, even when I'm not even paying attention, he's with me. In our ministry, he's with me. What does he say? I'm with you how often? Always. Do you see it? Always. Always. What a promise Jesus gives here. Think of who he is. God himself. Our comforter. Our guide. Our counselor. Our friend, our Savior. He's with us in all ministry, right? He's with us. He's with us in prayer, isn't he? Does it have, do we have to have two people to make it work? You know, with two or three are gathered together in his name, there is he in the midst. Is he there with one person too? Yes, he is. Alright. What about in teaching? Is he a part of that? What about in discipline? Oh, here, terrible subject. Is the Lord in that? Matter of fact, that's where that verse comes, where two or three did gather together. That's under the concept of discipline, too. Jesus is present. What about in difficulty? What about in evangelism? What about in blessing? What about in persecution? What about in power? Are there only certain days he's with you? Or every day? Every hour? Is he with you today? Is he with you tomorrow? What did he just promise? I am with you always. Why is the pastor stressing such a thing? Because this is one aspect of the ministry we have to know. We have to know. Without it, we go to doubt. We go to doubt. This is what Jesus told his disciples. Well, as one commentary said this, this last sentence of the gospel distinguishes the life of Jesus from all other histories or biographies. It is one life in all literature. These years were not spent as a tale that is told. The Lord lives in his gospel so that all who receive his final promise may catch the light of his eye, feel the touch of his hand, hear the tones of his voice, see for themselves and be acquainted with him 
who to know is life eternal. Fresh and new, rich and strong for all the days. The gospel is not a record of the past, but a revelation of the present Savior. The one whose voice sounds deep and clear across all storms of life. Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. The disciples did not go out alone. They went with his presence. They were sent by his authority to minister in his name, to know his presence. Now, are we different than they? How have you been doing your ministry lately? Go on, evaluate real quick. Has it been according to this or has it been according to doubt? We doubt in ministry, I know. But I so much want to understand more the authority of Christ. Don't you? That's how a servant serves, under his authority. Heavenly Father, you know every heart, life, and ministry in this room. There's nothing hidden from your sight. And Lord, you know how often we have tried to serve you in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own power, in our own will. Lord, we feel rather small right now when we stand in your presence thinking of how often we've attempted to do this our own way. And yet your words are rather clear today. I hope we have not missed them. This ministry is yours. It wears your name. It's by your power, your direction, your word. The results are yours. And even we as servants are yours. There's nothing outside of your authority. And I pray that we learn to understand this as your servants. If we are going to serve you as we ought to, we need to understand your authority. Teach us, Lord, what these words mean and help us to live by them. To serve by your authority. To go forth in your name. To recognize your presence in our midst. And to bring you glory. Work in our hearts. Every single one of us here today, whatever we do in your, in your ministry today, may we do it the way you've called us to do it. So that in the end, Lord, not one percent, not even a half percent of the glory comes to us, but it all goes to you. Thank you for who you are, for allowing us to be part of your ministry and even being so patient with us in the process. We're so much like these disciples. We need your lessons on servants. Servanthood according to the words of Christ. Challenge us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.